Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing, the show where busy people like you learn how to build substantial passive income while creating wealth for the long term. And now, here's your host, Marco Santarelli. Welcome to another episode of Passive Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Marco Santarelli. And remember, this is the show where busy people like you learn how to build substantial passive income and create wealth for the long term. Now, today's show is pretty special. You see, there's a reason why real estate is one of the most tax-favored assets in the entire country. There is a lot of great benefits to owning income-producing real estate. We've talked about depreciation in past episodes, how you can amortize or depreciate the improvements of your property over 27 and a half years. You don't need to spend a single penny to get that depreciation. It is absolutely incredible. But at some point, that will run out. After 27 and a half years, that clock will run out. Now you don't have that ability, but there is a way around it. There is a way to reset the clock. There's also a way to take equity that you have in your existing properties and move that equity into other, better, larger properties. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going from single family homes to fourplexes or apartments, but what it does mean is that you can take the existing equity you have across one or more of your properties and leverage that into more property, better property that increases your cash flow. And in the process of doing that, because there are sales involved, you can defer your capital gains taxes. In fact, done right, you can defer them forever, indefinitely, well, at least until you pass away. And then there's some nifty things that happen like a step up in the basis of that property. So those that you will or or heir the property too can start the clock over for themselves without any tax impact. It's really a powerful thing, but that's what you're going to learn about today. So I have a really special guest who's going to go into a lot of detail. I went through a lot of information before bringing him on the show and I structured my questions in a logical format where we can just kind of start with the most basics and go through some complicated scenarios. But first, I want to take one of my listener questions here, which I don't think I've covered in the past, but it it ties in somewhat nicely to what our topic is today. And this person writes and says, Hi, Marco and Michael. A quick question about depreciation on tax returns. I know you guys are not CPAs, but I am sure you must have done it so many times. If a property is older than 27 and a half years when I bought it, and if I bought it rehab, can I still claim the depreciation on the building, not the land? Does the counter get reset somewhere during the process, or is this something that is applicable to properties newer than 27 years old or just once during the life of the building? Thanks, guys. Well, I know what you're asking, but you're asking the wrong question. It's really not a matter of the age of the property. You're getting the depreciation cycle of 27.5 years confused with the age of the property. The age is completely irrelevant. A property could have 10 different owners and each owner gets to start that 27.5 year depreciation cycle over every time there's a new owner that takes possession of that property. So there can be an indefinite number of 27.5 year depreciation cycles. So the 27 and a half year depreciation starts the day you take possession of that property. It has nothing to do with the age. It could be new construction. It could be a 150-year-old property. It really doesn't matter. So that's really the short answer to your question. But what you'll see in this episode here, as we bring our guest on here in a moment, 
is that you can reset that 27 and a half year depreciation clock by using this tool, this 1031 exchange tool. I guess it's just a part of the IRS code, but really you got to think of this as a tool because it allows you to take that equity out of your property or properties, move it to other markets and increase your cash flow and leverage up your properties and reset that clock. So it's really a wonderful thing. So I have a great guest. I'm going to bring him on here in a few seconds. So we'll get to that in just a moment. Are you having a hard time finding great investment properties? Unfortunately, the best deals are rarely found locally. Successful investing begins with the right properties in the right markets. Norada Real Estate provides everything you need to invest in the best deals across the U.S. Our simple, proven system will help you create real wealth and passive monthly cash flow. Get your free copy of the ultimate guide to passive real estate investing at noradarealestate.com slash guide. That's N-O-R-A-D-A realestate.com slash guide. It's my pleasure to welcome Ron Ricard. Ron is the vice president and regional account manager for IPX 1031. He's also a designated certified exchange specialist, one of fewer than 130 people in the country who has earned that certification with the Federation of Exchange Accommodators. And over the last 14 years, Ron has taught 1031 exchange accredited courses to over 30,000 investors and real estate professionals. So it is my great pleasure to have him on the show today. Ron, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Marco. Hey, it's great to have you here. This is a topic that I think is long overdue. I think a lot of real estate investors have heard of 1031 exchanges. Many of them know what a 1031 exchange is. Far fewer have probably used a 1031 exchange. Maybe they didn't know they needed it, or maybe it just hasn't come up to a point in their investment career where they need a 1031 exchange. So today, what I'd like to talk about is what a 1031 is, how to use it, what the benefits are. And from there, I think we can maybe answer some miscellaneous questions that I have that hopefully will educate our listeners and help them to build their portfolio or defer taxes using these 1031 exchanges. How's that sound? Sounds great. Sounds like it's going to be a full day. Yeah, no kidding. Well, (laughs) let's take it from the top. So why don't we start off with you and tell us a little bit about yourself and about IPX 1031. Well, as you mentioned, I've been doing this uh, about 14 years and it's a great job if you have the opportunity, because I love helping people. And this best part about this job is I'm helping people save taxes. IPX is the nation's largest qualified intermediary. We're really the only one with a national presence, but uh, we, and we can handle exchanges anywhere within the United States. We are the sister company to Fidelity, Chicago, Lawyers Title, and a bunch of other title companies across the country and owned by Fidelity National Financial. Now, we work with everybody in terms of title and escrow and closing attorneys, But it's nice to know we're part of a big corporation because, as you'll find out, one of the things that we do as an intermediary is we have to hold your money between when you sell property and when you buy the replacement property. And it's nice to know that your money is being held by a nice, big, safe company with lots of insurance and bonding and and that kind of protection. Right. That's exactly true. Let's start off with the most basic of questions here. You know, we're talking about 1031 exchanges. What exactly is a 1031 exchange? 1031 refers to the section of the tax code that allows you to sell an asset that you use in your business or investment and reinvest the funds or reinvest the proceeds from that sale into what's referred to as a like-kind asset. That And by doing so, you get to defer taxes. So for many of your clients, they will own, let's say, a single-family rental house. It's been an investment property for the last few years. 
they want to sell that and buy multiple property or let's just say a duplex. They want to sell that property to buy a duplex. So by doing the 1031 exchange, they sell their property. At the close of escrow, the money comes to a neutral third party referred to as the intermediary. They then go buy that replacement property and the money is sent to the title company or closing attorney there. And that effectively is what the 1031 exchange is. You sold a piece of investment real estate, you bought a piece of investment real estate. And because you never touched the money, you get to defer paying taxes on the profit that you made. Okay. Let's be clear on what like kind means, because I think that's confusing for some people. In this particular case, at least with real estate investors, that would refer to income producing property, investment property, not your principal residence, right? Correct. It, it could be any kind of property used for business or investment. So if you are running your doctor's office out of a building that you, you're practicing in, that's considered investment real estate. For most of us, it's going to be income producing property. If you've had bare land that's been in the family for a long time and it's appreciated in value, that's considered investment real estate also. Any kind of investment real estate can be exchanged for any other kind. So you can sell residential to buy commercial you can sell bare land and buy a fourplex. You can sell a farm and buy a rental condo. So it could be any kind of investment real estate for any other kind of investment real estate. Like you said, though, this is not for primary residences. This is not for second homes. This is not for flips. Those are not considered to be investment real estate. As a general rule, investment real estate is real estate that you're either running your business from, you're getting rental income from, or in the case of bare land, is considered to be investment because it's held for appreciation purposes. Okay. Now, what about a qualified intermediary, also known as a QI? If I understand correctly, the way the laws were written as far as QIs go, virtually anyone can be a qualified intermediary as long as they're not defined as not being able to be a QI. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but mm -hmm. maybe you can just touch upon that so people understand what a, a qualified intermediary really is. Let me take one step back from that. It's possible to sell a piece of real estate without a realtor. Technically, it's possible to transfer title to a buyer without having to go through a title company. However, whenever you do an exchange, you must use a qualified intermediary. And what we do by definition is we are a neutral third party. So we are not the realtor. We are not the title company. We are not the lender. We are not your mother. We are not your CPA. We are just a neutral third party. And our entire job is just to hold the money between what you sell and what you buy. And as you mentioned, what we do is not regulated. So there are a lot of entities out there who will act as intermediary who have very little bonding or insurance or basically security on the client's funds, but it is a required part of any exchange. Sure. Okay. All right. So 1031s have these rules wrapped around it. There's quite a few rules, but there's some very basic rules like the 45-day rule and the 180-day rule. This is the first thing we normally hear from clients when they give us a call about you know 1031s or maybe they're looking to do one or maybe they're already in the process of doing one. So let's explain the 45-day and the 180-day rule for our listeners so we understand how this process works. 90% of the questions that we get when it comes to setting up an exchange is what can I buy? How long do I have and how much money do I need to spend? We've talked about what do we need to buy? Again, any kind of investment real estate. But the second question, the one you're bringing up now is really the crux of it is how long do I have to reinvest in new property? So from the day you close escrow on the of what you're selling, you have 45 days to identify, to tell us what you're going to buy and 180 days to actually buy it. So 45 days to tell us in writing 
I'm going to buy one of these properties and 188 days to close escrow. Now, what does identify mean? Identify means you give us a piece of paper where you've written down addresses. Now, depending, we'll talk about how many you can identify in just a minute, but during the 45 days, you can change your mind on what you've identified as much as you want. But when midnight strikes on that 45th day, even if it's a weekend or a holiday, or it doesn't matter. Whenever midnight strikes on that 45 days, whatever you've identified is locked in stone. You have to buy from that list. You cannot buy a, a different property on day 46 or 50 or 65. You have to buy from that list. So that's why the 45 days really is the critical uh, factor. Now you have 180 days to close escrow. So unless it's, unless you're buying new construction or commercial real estate, that hardly ever comes into play. But that the 45 days to tell us exactly the property you're going to buy. Yeah. And it's also very important for our listeners to know that you or the qualified intermediary, they have to be engaged before you relinquish the property. In other words, before it's sold, they need to be involved. And if you don't, I mean, you're going to completely botch your 1031 exchange. Exactly. As a matter of fact, I literally got a phone call this morning from somebody who had closed escrow last Thursday and said, hey, is it too late to send the exchange? The answer is yes, because the title company or the closing entity has to know to send the money to the intermediary and not to the seller of the property. So we have to be engaged prior to the close of escrow. If they're in the process of closing escrow, but funds haven't been dispersed, is it possible to request the title company hold those proceeds until you get your paperwork involved? It depends where exactly you're referring to. If the escrow is actually closed, but the funds just haven't been dispersed, the answer is still no, because technically the client has rights on the money. They have the ability to get the money, even if they haven't picked up the check yet. So it has to be done before the close so that the, at the disbursement, the escrow officer has the direction that the money has to come to us. Okay. So it's very important to impress upon everybody that this 45-day rule might be one of the most important rules because it is hard and fast. There is no exception unless there is some sort of major federal emergency and the president of the United States declares some sort of state of emergency. I think that is the one and only exception to this rule. Is that true? That is true. And that's also only if it is a federally declared disaster area during your 45 days. So for example, there were some hurricanes or some major storms in South Texas last week. And so a couple of the counties were declared disaster areas. So because of that, if you were happen to be in the middle of your 45 days or your 180 days, then you, you are given extra time. But essentially, short of there being a tornado or a flood or earthquake or some major havoc affecting you, you, then no, you will not get an exchange. So my hope is you're not going to look at this as, as praying for a tornado. You're, you don't want it to come because and it's obviously very unexpected when it, when it does happen. Yeah. So you'd think we'd be done with rules, but there are more rules. So from, from this 45-day rule, we can segue on to a couple other rules here. There's the three-property rule and then the 200% rule. So let's talk about those. Right. The question always comes up at how many properties can I identify? Can I just give you the Thomas Brothers guide and say I'll pick something in here or the, or the phone book? The answer is no. If your goal is to buy one or two properties, now, one thing I should mention also, in an exchange, you're not limited to one for one. You can sell one property by two or three. I did an exchange once for a woman who bought 18 properties. Similarly, you can sell multiple properties to buy one. But 
if your goal is to only buy one or two properties, most people identify under a rule that limits you to no more than three properties. So if you identify three properties, those properties could be of any value anywhere in the United States. If your goal, though, is to buy three or four or five or in one case, 18 properties, there is a second rule that allows you to identify more than three properties. And that is was referred to as the 200% rule. The 200% rule allows you to identify 200% or two times the value of what you sell. So if you're selling, let's say, a $500,000 property, you could identify two times that or a million dollars worth of replacement property. Now, again, make sure we focus on this. If you're identifying three or fewer, there is no dollar limit. So if you're identifying three or fewer, you can be identifying 10, 20, 30 times what you sold. But if you identify more than three, now the cumulative market value of all those properties cannot be more than two times the value of what you sold. Okay. Is it worth talking about the 95% rule or is that? Just- it, it really isn't because nobody ever uses it. I mean, in my 14 years, I think I've seen it used four times and all four times were by accident. Okay. <laughs> it, it essentially says you can identify whatever you want, but you got to buy everything. And that's rarely, rarely used. It would seem that the purpose of these rules is to prevent people from listing out every single property for sale in a particular market or city just so they have, you know, anything and everything under the sun to pick from and they don't have to worry about identifying specific properties. That's a great way to look at it. And the question I always get is, do I have to be in contract by the 45 days? And the way the rules are written, the answer is no, technically not. Technically, all you've done is given us a list of three properties or a list of X number of dollars worth of real estate. But the reality is if on day 46, those get all sold to somebody else or you find out they're being held up by termites or something and you don't want them anymore, then you know you lose. You're, you're going to get your money back in six months and pay your taxes. So really by the 45 days, you really should be in contract. Ideally, your loan's approved, your inspections are done. You, know, you want to be pretty comfortable you know, that what you're going to buy by that 45 days. And the reality is most of my clients are either done with their exchange or, or almost done with their exchange by the time we get to the 45 days. So that brings up a very good point and a caution. So if someone is looking at a particular set of properties and they've identified some of those or all of them within that 45-day period, you need to make sure that you have a certain number of those properties under contract or at least have an option on them. In other words, you need to have some sort of control on those properties so you don't lose them and end up having the situation you just described where you lose all those properties on the 46th day and now you're completely out of luck. You're going to have to buy something, but you're going to pay taxes. Exactly. And so that, that's why really by the 45 days, you want to be pretty locked down on what you want to buy. And to be clear on the tax piece, I don't know if we kind of glossed over this before, but it's the capital gains taxes on the equity or gains that you're pulling out of the property you're selling. So what you're trying to do here is avoid paying capital gains taxes and deferring those taxes. And in some cases, almost indefinitely, you could set up your affairs so those taxes are deferred indefinitely. But you're deferring those capital gains taxes onto your next properties and your next set of properties and so on and so forth. The way to look at it is this. Yeah, 1031 only defers the taxes. So you sell the house to buy a duplex, you sell a duplex to buy a fourplex, and you keep, keep, keep doing all that. And the goal is eventually that basically you die before you sell anything. Now your heirs get the stepped up tax basis and all the taxes are wiped away. That's why the motto of our industry is swap till you drop. You just keep exchanging and then hopefully you never have to pay the tax man. 
There you go. Swap till you drop. I like that. I'll have to borrow that phrase. <laughs> it's good. You're more than welcome to. It's kind of, the, like I said, the motto of our industry. Okay. I like now, it. Now, one thing I should point out also is that you referred to capital gain. You said something earlier that a lot of your clients are going to probably confuse. Don't confuse the equity in your property with the profit in the property. I know, and I know you wouldn't do that, Marco. But you know, the equity in the property is just the amount of cash that you get after everybody, including the bank, has been paid off. Whereas the profit in the property or the gain is the difference between your basis and what you sell the property for. Now, that will include both capital gain as well as state taxes, as well as what's referred to as, as depreciation recapture tax. 1031 defers all of those. Even if you're selling in one state and buying another, you're still deferring state taxes in virtually every state, as well as the capital gain and depreciation recapture on the federal tax side. There's a reason why real estate is referred to as the most tax-favored asset in the country. And it's because you can do these 1031 exchanges and defer your capital gains, your net proceeds from that sale. But what's really cool about it is when you do an an exchange into a new property or a new set of properties, what you're doing is you're resetting the clock all over again on the depreciation schedule. Because as many of our listeners know, you have 27 and a half years. With commercial property, it's about 39. It's a longer cycle than with residential real estate. But with residential real estate, you have 27 and a half years to depreciate the property, which is a phantom expense. The IRS allows you to depreciate this property without having to spend a single dime to get it. And then you can get yourself a new set of properties and restart that depreciation cycle, that clock all over again. And that's an amazing one-two punch that comes with a 1031 exchange and the depreciation expense. That's why a lot of people will... You know, after they've owned a property for a period of time, 10, 15, 20 years, or as they're approaching the 27 years, you know, they've built up a lot of equity in the property. And the idea of re-leveraging that equity into more property, into incremental investment. So if you sold something for 200 and you buy something for 300, that's going to give you in round numbers, $100,000 new depreciation to write off. And a lot of clients, that's that's one of the, the benefits of, of real estate, like you mentioned, are these phantom tax write-offs, as you call them, for depreciation. And every time you leverage up all that, every time that incremental investment becomes a new depreciation schedule. Yeah, it's incredibly powerful. And here's another tip I, I just want to share and throw out there before I forget. Sometimes we have clients that call us and they are in the middle of a 1031 exchange and they haven't identified their property. So we're scrambling against the clock to get properties identified. I think it's very important to start looking for those replacement properties well before you close. And and if you can't do that, then there's an argument to be made that you should extend the closing on the property that you're selling just to buy you some extra time in order to find and identify those properties. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. And a lot of it depends on the market you're in. And Right now, in much of the United States, there's very little inventory, and finding replacement property is not as easy. 45 days, I always say they're the fastest 45 days of your life. So most of my clients are actually in contract on the replacement before they close. So you definitely want to be looking. I mean, you can literally close escrow the very next day, and in some cases, even the same day as you sell your property. Now, one thing that's important to realize here. You do need to sell your property before you buy the replacement. There is something called a reverse exchange where you buy first, but that's a much more expensive, much more involved transaction and probably something we'll talk about different in another podcast, but not today. But yeah, being in contract 
on the replacement property, even before you sell yours, is perfectly fine. But as long as you sell first, then buy. And we have really good relationships with our teams and providers all around the country. So if an investor is in a situation like that, we have been able to help them lock down a certain number of properties subject to or conditioned upon their closing of their 1031 property. So we can usually draw out that cycle or that schedule so they can close and not worry about losing the properties that they want to purchase in whatever market they're looking at. So we can help you with that if that's the situation. So now tell us about the reinvestment of the net proceeds. First of all, just explain what the net proceeds mean on that 1031 sale. And then how do you go about reinvesting that? Because that's really what the QI is supposed to do in this situation. Right. Now, this goes back to the third question of that we always ask is, how much do I need to reinvest? And the simple answer is all of it. No, it does not matter what you bought the property for. It does not matter how much you've depreciated. It does not matter how much money you put as a down payment or to fix up the property or improvements during the life. All that matters is how much you are selling the property for. So if you sell a property for $500,000, you need to buy at least $500,000 worth of replacement property to defer all your taxes. If you want to buy something a little bit less and pay taxes on the Delta, you are welcome to do so. But if you want to defer all of your taxes, you want to buy equal or greater to the net sales price. And by net, I just mean you are deducting the cost of the realtor and escrow and title, essentially the closing cost. Do not subtract the loan. But whatever that net sales price is, you want to buy equal or greater to that amount. Now, when you do close escrow, obviously any existing loan that you have on the property also gets paid off. What's remaining are the net proceeds, and that's what, as you say, comes to the intermediary. So part two is all of that equity, all of the cash that comes from the sale, all needs to go as a down payment or towards the purchase of the replacement property. Any cash left over is considered to be what's referred to as boot or taxable. So equal or greater in value and use all the cash proceeds. All right. And if you're short 20000 10000 to close the escrow on your new property, you just come out of pocket with that. You can either come out of either your own pocket or you can just get a bigger loan. So you can make up the difference however you want. As a matter of fact, if let's say you have a property that you're selling for 500000 and you have four fifty of equity and you don't want to get another loan on a new property, as long as you put up that $50,000 from your own pocket, that's okay also. You don't need necessarily to replace the loan. You just need to replace the value of the loan. And so however you make up that difference, whether it's with your own cash or with a loan, perfectly fine. Okay. So at what point should an investor bring their tax professional or their accountant into this process? Because obviously there's tax implications or, or lack of tax implications. At what point should they bring the accountant in? What I usually will tell clients is, before you even get started, before you even sell the property, it's nice to have a chat with the intermediary because if nothing else, let's go over what you're planning to do and then let's see if there are any potential hiccups or potential issues, whether it comes to vesting or how much you want to reinvest or getting a loan or, or whatever the case might be. I mean, if it's a simple transaction, you know you've made a lot of money on this duplex and you want to go buy a fourplex, you know, for the most part, you know what you're doing. You probably may not need to bring the, the accountant in 
right away. If there's any question though about what you're doing, any complication, in those cases, yeah, we typically will recommend that you bring your accountant in and ask them some questions. Now, sometimes the question may be as simple as, how big is the check I have to write to the government? Because if you, you know, if you can do an exchange and not have to any taxes to pay, you probably don't need to do an exchange. So that would be something that's worth finding out from the very beginning. So my suggestion is always call the intermediary first. You talk to them about, about the situation. That way, if nothing else, you know what questions to ask your accountant. Because frequently when you ask your accountant questions, you're not sure what you're asking them. What about when the situation is a little more complicated and you are selling a group of single family residential properties because now you are trading up into multi-unit properties? You know, you, obviously your single family residential properties don't sell all at the same time. You might have one sell today and another one won't close for another 30 days and that gets a little bit messy. So is there a way to handle a situation like that? Well, there are a couple of things that you, a couple of ways to handle it. The first thing to realize is the 45-day and 180-day clocks both start when the first property closes escrow. So if your goal is to sell, let's just say, three properties to buy one larger replacement property, the first one that closes. So the thing I will tell them first is it's probably worth you working with one agent who is kind of coordinating everything. And what I'll suggest is you know, the first one that goes into contract asks for a longer escrow, maybe a 60-day escrow on that first one. And with the expectation that maybe the second one, you go into contract, you can you know, time it so that they close relatively close together. If you think that there is going to be one property who's going to be much more difficult to close because it's in an area that's maybe the real estate doesn't move very fast or is at a certain price point or certain kind of property, you might want to put that one on the market first. And, you know, and then once you find a buyer for that property, or at least once it gets, you're getting closer to finding a buyer for that property, you know, then you could put the other ones on the market. But ideally, you want to close everything within a reasonable amount of time so that that maximizes your ability to know what, what you're going to buy by that 45 days for the identification, etc. That said, this is also a time where sometimes the reverse exchange plays into it, where maybe you're selling. I have one right now where the client wants to sell five properties. And the way it's going to work out, they'll be able to sell three of them before they close on the apartment building that they want to buy, but the other two they probably won't be able to. So in this case, we are going to do a combination of a regular exchange and a reverse exchange where they'll sell the two others afterwards. Again, more expensive, more money out of pocket up front. But in a situation like this where you're selling multiple properties but you have something specifically in mind, then it's something that's worth exploring also. So the net result is you still can defer all your capital gains taxes Absolutely. in doing it. It's just a little more complicated. You're juggling closing dates. Hopefully you're working with some sellers that can be a little bit flexible with you and extending those closing dates for you. So you're just having to manage, closely manage all these properties and the closing dates on them. Correct. Okay. All right. What else can I ask you here? Here's a scenario. What if you sold a property and... Now you want to purchase something larger, but you want to bring a partner in with you. It's kind of a loaded question. I, I know how this is going to work, but uh, how does this play out if you want to bring in a partner on your new property in a 1031? Well, there's a term that you just used there that, I, that scares the heck out of me. That term is partner. You, you don't want to bring a partner into it. You, want, you may want to bring a co-owner in with you, but not a partner. So let me, let me explain why. What's important in a 1031 exchange when it comes to vesting 
is that it has to be the same taxpayer selling as buying. So Marco, if you're selling a property in your name or your trust, then you need to buy the replacement property either in your name or your trust because you're the same taxpayer buying the new property. If you want me to go in and buy that property with you, what we need to do is we need to be tenants in common on that property so that your share of whatever you buy is equal or greater to what you've sold. And if I'm doing an exchange, my share is equal or greater to what I've sold. So we don't want to form an LLC or partnership or corporation or any kind of entity that is its own taxpayer. We would need to buy the property as tenants in common. One thing I do recommend here if you are doing that is please – this is one area where you definitely want to bring your, in your tax professional because you want to make sure the structure of the co-ownership of the property does look like a true tenant in common relationship and not a kind of partnership. And for listeners that are listening to this and they're wondering what the heck is a tenant in common, it's also known as a TIC, T-I-C. But all it is is really just an arrangement where you have two or more people that co-own a piece of real estate, but there's no right of survivorship. And so that's all it really is. It's not technically speaking a partnership. It may look and smell like a partnership, but at the end of the day, you have no right of ownership or survivorship if you were to pass away. And that's really all it is. And the nice thing about the tenant and common ownership also is that it does not need to be 50-50. I mean, you could own 90%, me 10%, or you 73% and me 27%. So it gives you the ability to own a fractional share of the property, not necessarily equal shares of the property. Right. Okay. So I had a question actually from a client of mine, and I'm just looking at it here. So they're asking, are, what are some guidelines of, okay, here, I'll just read it out. How, what are some guidelines of how much equity you should keep in a home? I assume he mentioned investment property before deciding to either refinance to reinvest or do a 1031 exchange to quote unquote upgrade it. I have some comments on this and maybe you do too. So do you want to go first on this one? Because I, I could be very long-winded on this one. <laughs> well, I'll start, if only because I think my answer is going to be very short. The answer is that truly is a question about your investment strategy, whether your investment strategy is to leverage yourself to be able to buy multiple properties, whether you can be cash flow negative, whatever. So that truly is a question having to do with your strategy from an exchange point of view. When is the right time to exchange? is something that you have to decide for yourself, whether it's the amount of equity you have, whether it's the right property for you. And you know, there's much more that you're going to answer that than I can. Well, you're spot on. That's exactly what I was thinking. Your strategy on what you're planning to do, how large you want to build your portfolio, what you want to have in your portfolio, the stage in your life. Are you in accumulation mode right now? Or are you just maintaining a portfolio where you want to rapidly accelerate the pay down of the loan so you have greater net worth and maybe increased cash flow? So strategy comes into this very heavily. And then you got to look at market conditions. You know, if the current and what you feel the future market conditions are such that you're not going to see a lot of future growth or equity growth in that property because there is a lack of appreciation then you may want to consider doing a 1031 exchange out of that market. You know, unless you got a real jewel of a property and it's a cash cow, then it may be worth to keep it. The amount of equity, the return on equity is always a big fat zero. So if you can leverage that equity and take it out of properties where you are equity rich and turn that into multiple properties in other markets that make sense where you can increase your overall cash flow by leveraging out of that 
property and taking that equity and increasing the size of your portfolio, that is a wonderful strategy. And that's what you see a lot of investors in expensive markets like the coastal markets, be it New York or California, where you're just pulling equity out of these very pricey, overinflated markets and reducing your risk out of that market putting it into more linear markets like the Midwest, down South and through the Southeast, increasing your cash flow, having properties with less downside potential because the land costs aren't as much as they are in these coastal markets. So I could go on and on, but that's a long-winded answer or commentary to that question. So I think those are the things you need to keep in mind and consider. And if you're not sure what to do, talk to your professionals, give our investment counselors a call. They could talk to you and walk you through it. Maybe give Ron Ricard a call and he can talk to you about it as well. So anyway, I'll get off my soapbox. That's what I have to say. Let me attack on to one thing that, and I know we're getting close to the end here, Marco, but yep. I want to attack on one thing there. A lot of times I get asked the question, why do people do 1031 exchanges? And the answer that you would expect is that you do it to defer taxes. And that is not at all why you do a 1031 exchange. You do a 1031 exchange because you want to buy a property that's better. Now, what does better means? Better means whatever it means to you. Whether better means that you want to go from the highly inflated coast, as you put it, to the cash flow south and southeast. Whether it is I want to go from my single family houses to an apartment building or my apartment building to single family houses. Whether it's I'm older now and I want more cash flow than appreciation, whether I'm looking for an exit strategy. The key here is that you do an exchange because you have a piece of real estate today, but it no longer meets the criteria that you have as part of your investment strategy. And you know, if you have this in the stock market, you don't like your stock anymore and you want to sell it to buy another stock, you can do that. But every time you do that, you're going to pay the tax man. Whereas in real estate, we don't have to. And the beauty of the 1031 exchange is it allows you to reposition your real estate assets into something that makes more sense for you today than the property you bought 5, 10, 15 years ago. Because most people who own a property 10 years or more, that's probably not the right property for them today. They probably would like something better, whether it's for more depreciation, more cash flow, less maintenance, whatever the case might be. So don't think of 1031 as a tool to defer taxes. Think of 1031 as a tool that you use to reposition your real estate asset into something that makes more sense for you today. Yeah, and, and that's very well said. And I think a lot of that comes down to a common denominator of increasing your cash flow. And I think secondly would be to position yourself to take advantage of potential market appreciation in other markets that may be more ripe for that growth. And, and I don't like to talk about appreciation too much because you will get that equity over time, but you're right. You're basically improving your portfolio through a 1031 exchange. So Ron, in winding up here, I want to kind of leave our listeners with some thoughts and questions that they should have in the back of their mind when they're talking to a QI, a qualified intermediary. So what are the most important things they should look for, the questions that they should be asking a QI before they hand over the money from the sale of their property? The first thing to ask is, who are you in the sense of what kind of protection 
do you have on the money that you're holding for me? Do you have, you know, what kind of bond, what kind of corporate backing do you have? Because again, what we do is not at all regulated. And now there are a couple states who have a little bit of regulation on them, but the vast majority of states have zero regulation on what we do. So you want to make sure that money is safe because even if the intermediary themselves are honest people, they are also subject to people trying to get them to fraudulently wire money to the wrong place and stuff like that. So you want to make sure that the money is not just backed up by bonds and stuff like that, but it's all secured by a parent corporation who can step in and make good on, on those funds. It's not worth saving 50 bucks to find somebody on the internet who can do this. The second thing you want to ask the intermediary is how much help are you going to give me? There are a lot of intermediaries who are strictly our order takers, whereas there are a lot of us who out there who truly want to help our clients and we will walk you through it. And I will say, honestly, that I probably talk a third of the people I speak to out of doing an exchange because it's just not right for them to do. So you want to make sure you're dealing with somebody who's not just holding your money. You want to make sure someone's going to, who's going to guide you through this. Hopefully they even have attorneys on staff who can guide you if things got very complicated in the transaction. What about E&O insurance or coverage? Yeah, E&O insurance is the insurance that a company has in case they make a mistake. So if somehow we make a mistake on the paperwork that costs our clients a million dollars in taxes, that this, the insurance company would pick that up. So yeah, E&O insurance is very important, as well as fidelity bonding, which is essentially the guarantee that I'm not going to walk away with your funds. We live in a world of acronyms, and I, I guess I should have just spelled it out. E and O refers to errors and omissions coverage or insurance. And I probably just did the same thing to you. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. So it's good. It's good. Can't assume all listeners know what every single acronym means. But uh, now what about guarantees? Is there such a thing as a guarantee in the world of a 1031 exchange? Well, I will say give that a qualified yes. I mean, in terms for us, our guarantee in it over and above this errors and emissions insurance or the fidelity bond is that being backed by a publicly traded Fortune 300 company, each of our clients' exchanges literally has a corporate guarantee for up to $50 million so that if somehow, some way, our, the funds got sent to the wrong place, the corporate guarantee would step in and make good on those funds. So that's one thing that we do offer that. I'm sure the vast majority of other intermediaries aren't able to do so. Great. So in wrapping up, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? Something I didn't ask you that maybe I should have asked you? Well, I think we've gone over the major components. The last thing I'll say is, you know, don't be afraid to ask questions of the intermediary. Bring them in as early as possible into the transaction to help them guide you on the transaction. There's really nothing to do paperwork-wise until the property that you're selling is in contract. But feel free to, to get them addressed. If your clients want to give me a call, whoever's listening to this podcast, I welcome their phone calls. I have a toll-free number, 877-747-7875. Again, 877-747-7875. Always available to answer questions. Uh, I do exchange all over the country. I'll put your contact information in the uh, show notes, but is there a website or anything you want to give out as well or just uh, that phone number? Absolutely. We have a great website with lots of information. We get compliments from it all the time. And it's IPX1031.com. So www.i like Indian, P like Peter, X like X-ray, 1031.com. Our company actual name is Investment Property Exchange Services. Perfect. Ron, well, I'm sure you're going to get a number of calls from this episode. So I appreciate your time. The information was fabulous. And I will look forward to working with you on my 1031 exchanges. Sounds great, Marco. Looking forward to the next podcast and let's go out and do some business. Sounds good. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. 
So there you have it. I hope that has helped you better understand a 1031 exchange, its benefits, and how you go about doing it. If you have any questions, be sure to give Ron a call. He will help you in better understanding it if uh, we didn't cover something that is unique to your particular situation. And uh, we are almost out of those keep calm and invest on mugs. So I've had to actually place another order here today, and we'll have those in a few weeks. But if you are interested in one of our free mugs, be sure to leave us a rating and review on iTunes or or any other uh, medium that we are carried on. But leave us a review and just send an email to reviews at noradarealestate.com and make sure you leave us your address and I'll drop one of those mugs in the mail for you. That really helps us spread the word and increases the visibility of our show. And if you're not sure where to find that link, just tap on the logo in your iTunes podcast player on your iPhone or whatnot, and you'll see the link there or just go to the show notes and you'll find the link there as well. That's about it. So thanks for listening and we'll see you next week on our next episode. Nothing on this show should be considered specific personal or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate legal, tax, real estate, or business professional for individualized advice. For distribution or publication rights and media interviews, please contact the host.